Welcome to Leadership 2020. I'm Claire Carpenter. I'm joined today by Kim Nilsson. Kim is an ex-astronomer turned entrepreneur and runs a data science marketplace called Pivigo. And Kim, I'm so excited. Thank you, first of all, um, for joining me today. I'm really excited about talking to you about all things um, data and leadership and how you have made the change yourself, actually, from um, the world of astrophysics into um, the world of entrepreneurship. So, So first of all, again, let me say thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Yes, happy to be here. Thank you. Um, so tell me about that. How did it happen? What led you from the world of physics into the world of data science? Well, yes, you see, first of all, I think as a background, I need to explain that I was about 13 years old when I looked up at the stars one night and I thought, I wonder why they twinkle at night and went to borrow a book about astronomy from my local library and decided then and there that astronomy was going to be my career for life. And from there, it was a straight path into my PhD and, and starting my career as a scientist, only to discover that actually I didn't enjoy it very much, and uh, which was quite a shock when you've had a dream for that long and you've worked towards something for that long. But I realized that uh, actually I didn't enjoy to sit behind a computer all day and, and run computer models and, and calculate uh, the positions of stars, etc., but rather... I really wanted to work with people and to, to be out working among people and working in a team on a daily basis. And actually, that's then where my challenges started about transitioning out of academia, because it wasn't very easy to turn a very technical, very academic career into something where I could actually work with people on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I'm mean, thinking that that was a really brave decision for you as well. It's quite difficult, isn't it, to say the thing that you've trained for for a, a really long time isn't actually what your passion is after all? Yes, it was. It was a very tough decision and, and it included a lot, of, a lot of pain and a lot of thinking and a lot of talking to, to people to dare to make the jump. Um, in fact, I was quite lucky that at the time, the HR assistant at my work at my institute at the time, she was training to be a personal coach and she offered to coach me for free as part of her training. Mm-hmm. And it was really helpful at that point to talk to someone who could really tease out what was important to me in my life. Uh, and I'm very grateful for for helping me make that decision to to transition. And whenever I get an opportunity nowadays, when I meet uh, people who are unhappy in their careers, I try to support them to make the jump because it's not fun to be in a job that you don't enjoy and there are so many opportunities out there for those who dare to make the jump. I think that's um, really important advice and I'm in, really interested that you um, used a coach to help you do that and sometimes you do need just to have that person, don't you, to ask you some interesting questions to help you think in a different way. Yes, I think having mentors or coaches or or it could be just family friends, mm. family and friends who you can talk to who are who are happy to just listen and not try to push their opinion on you what is right or wrong, mm. uh, but who are happy to just listen and and ask the right questions to get you to understand what you want. It, it is very important, and uh, those of us who have those opportunities are very lucky indeed. And so let's learn some more about your new world. So um, tell me a 
a little bit more about Pivigo. How did that happen? Mm, yes, so um, Pivigo came out of, of that uh, period of transition that I had. And as I said, I really felt the pain of how to translate an academic career into something that industry was interested in. I applied to, I think, 30 different jobs after my science career um, hardly even got interviewed because the employers looked at my CV and thought, how could she possibly apply her skills in my company? And so for me, the the, uh, the transition happened via an MBA, a Master of Business Administration, which I did in the UK. And where I met the co-founder of my business, who has a recruitment background. And so together we thought, well, this is something that a lot of people go through. We have incredible talent in our universities who really struggle to make that transition out of academia. And then we have an industry that says we can't find enough analytical talent. And so clearly there's a gap. And that's where we became very passionate to work in that gap, to see what we can do to to help that gap, help the people find work, and uh, and that's what eventually turned into the company Pivigo. We decided to work only on in data science, which is a very exciting area at the moment. There are so many opportunities for companies to really innovate and get a lot of value out of their data, and at the same time, it's a great opportunity for these academics to retrain and become data scientists. It's a very fast-growing market, lots of demand for skilled people. And that's where we started to work. And the first thing we did was we started a training program for these academics to retrain as data scientists, something that's been uh, very successful to date. And as a second element, we then also thought, well, the, the gig economy is this new thing that's coming. Uh, the future of work is that we all work more flexibly. And so we started to offer the opportunity to connect companies that have data science problems with our large and growing community of data science experts. So, so that's where we are. We work in that space of training and connecting uh, data scientists with companies. So I'm thinking about the challenges of going to market with that and um, how you managed to convince hiring managers or leaders in the businesses that you were um, targeting as customers that your newly trained academics would be useful in that program. Mm. Well, that was that was not easy, <laughs> especially when, when, we, uh, when we launched this program the first time. There was nothing like it not in the UK and not even in Europe. There were a few programs like it in the US. And, and we went out to employers here and we said, this is what we want to do. We, we know we're going to be able to deliver incredible talent to your companies. Will you sponsor it? Will you back it? And most of them just shook their heads and, and couldn't understand what it was all about or why it would be valuable to them. And it was about six months of, of relentless networking and making connections and, and pitching to companies before we were we, we had a lucky strike and we met with KPMG, the, the large consultancy, and they got it. They really got what we were trying to do. They saw that we had credentials from my experience in academia, and they, they took a bet and they sponsored our first program. And of course, once we had a partner like that on board, we were able to attract other companies as well. So that was the start of a journey. <laughs> um, but it was it was hard work. And as with anything you do when you start a company, it's about finding the right people to talk to who, who get what you're trying to do and who see the value in it. And so as a business leader then, an entrepreneur in a startup business, 
what resources did you need to pull on internally for yourself to get you through that period? I think you ha- I mean, you have to have this very strong drive mm-hmm. uh, to want to move forward, to want to do better, to push yourself. I remember sales for me as an ex-academic was a huge hurdle to overcome because especially as an academic, the idea of sales has this really bad connotation. You know, it's basically the used car salesman thing about I'm going I'm trying to push something on you that you don't really want. But actually, uh, I was, again, lucky to have an encounter with a sales coach who gave me a free session and who made me see that sales is about win-win. It's about solving someone's problem, and then you both you both win from that. And so that made me ready to, okay, think I can do that because, actually, I want to help these companies. And And then it was, again, just a matter of, pushing myself beyond the boundaries of comfort and, uh, and and it gets easier every time. But you have to, I guess you have to be a little bit of a masochist. You have to be willing and happy to really push yourself and do things you're not comfortable with just for the thrill of when things then work out and hmm. you actually get recognition for everything that you've done. Yeah, as long as it outweighs it, that's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yes, it's it's entrepreneurship is a roller coaster, and I've said that as long as on average you're you know above medium, above okay, then uh, then it's all worth it. So, in thinking about advice that you might have for somebody who has an idea, they're passionate about a business that they would like to to take to market as an entrepreneur. What would you say to them um, are really important skills for them to have to do that successfully? Well, I think one of the key things that have made us successful, and of course it depends very much what type of business you're trying to create, if it's B2C or if it's B2B or if it's technology or service. Uh, although I think something that made us successful in the end was just this relentless desire to network because business comes from networks. So so you do business with people you know, you hire people you know, uh, you get advice from people you know. And I have now spent six years building the business and in parallel building my network of contacts. And there are loads of people in my network who have not yet been very useful, but who may still be in the future. And then there are some in there who have been pivotal in terms of supporting us with, if it's funding, if it's uh, contacts for sales, if it's contacts to people you want to bring into your business. So I think networking was the number one thing that really made a difference in our business. And then I, I guess as a second point, as a leader, you have to build up this this resilience. As I said, there will be a lot of times when you're, you're on the uh, on the on the down run of the roller coaster or when there's a lot of problems in your company and as the CEO as the founder you need to take that on you can't pass on those troubles to your team and so it's important i think as a founder to find a way to to have a safe space find a way to make sure that you stay strong you stay healthy so that you can take take all the pain away from the team and let them have peace and quiet to get on with what they need to get on with because it would be easy to put yourself last in that situation, wouldn't it? And think about your people and not really focus on yourself. Yes, and and I think honestly, I did I did that in the first few years. I just worked every hour I could imagine and took everything on myself. And then I got so tired that actually, 
it started to impact the business negatively just from the fact that I was tired and grumpy all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have forced myself to set aside certain times of the week uh, and so on where I just take time for myself. And it feels counterintuitive, but in the long run, it will make me a better leader because when I am on the job, then I have the energy, I have the drive, I have the passion to really do the best I can during those hours. So it's interesting, isn't it, that in um, some larger, more established businesses, people still feel worried, don't they, about taking time out and spending time on themselves? Mm. Yes, and I'm, I'm not. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a correlation between that and the fact that in the UK today we have this mental health wave of problems going through um, society. There are so many people in in society that suffer from stress, from fatigue, etc. I think we need to take better care of each other, although that doesn't necessarily mean just working fewer hours. It's it's about rethinking how we work, I think, in a smarter way and that we can really think about uh, our, our own health and also be effective. Yeah, because we have to have those restorative moments, don't we? We really need them. Yeah. So just thinking about um, the way that people connect, so you talked about networking there as a really important skill and something that was very impactful in, in the way that your business grew. Not everybody is born to network, are they? Some people feel very worried about it and don't feel comfortable um, in that situation. How do you learn to be a great networker, do you think? Well, yes, okay. I, I, I mean, I... To be frank, I am I am not a very sociable person. <laughs> I, I I am not the life of a party. I, I'm I have never been that sort of person that everyone knows and is friends with. Um, but I so I actually had to learn to do this well. And I think maybe there's two key things to it that I would recommend those who are in the earlier stages to do. Number one is you really just need to force yourself to do it. Again, I remember my one of my first astronomy conferences I was at was one of those where all the famous people in, in my area of science were there. And I really wish I knew them and that I could talk to them. And so I set myself a goal. I said, I'm going to this conference. I'm going to identify three people that I want to meet and I will meet them. And I forced myself to go up to them and talk to them during the breaks. And it was really awkward. <laughs> but afterwards, it felt really good because I had made the connection. I had also overcome my own my own shadow. So one thing is just forcing yourself to do it and almost put a metric on it if you have to, to incentivize yourself to do it. And, and again, it gets easier. The other thing I would say is you have to be a good conversationalist. And something that I have also realized with time is that by reading a lot of current affairs um, and, and things that go on, I store a lot of information in my head so that when I speak to someone and I find out that they're interested in a particular topic, I will have something I can talk about, how oh, I've read an article so-and-so, and thereby you get their interest and uh, and you can keep the conversation going so that it doesn't become awkward. And I found this very useful. Again, a couple of weeks ago, I was at a conference, bumped into a number of random people, and one of them was interested in climate change, one of them was interested in, in populism and politics, and one of them was interested in insurance. And and I managed to keep conversations going on all three topics within the same day, even though I'm, of course, not an expert on any of these things. 
So reading a lot and making sure you're up to up to speed with current affairs is another way to just make sure that you can always keep a conversation going. Yeah, have something prepared that you might might maybe um, have in common with them. That's great advice. Okay, so just thinking about um, your business now around data science, I'm just interested in what your um, thoughts are as to how managers and leaders in business can make more use of data to support the decisions that they're making. Yes, so so I've been in this industry for, as I said, about six or seven years now, and I guess on one hand, I'm a little bit disappointed how we're still a long way away from companies really making use of their data in a good way. Um, at the same time, I have seen change. I've seen evolution in the market in the, la- in the last six years. So there is change happening. Now, there's just so many opportunities for companies to run their businesses better. A very obvious one is around marketing. So understand, making sure you understand your customers very well. What are they interested in? How do I improve my marketing spend? It's very obvious, I think, to everyone that if you can just target the right customers through the right channel, and then you will save money on the ones that, that you're wasting, and uh, it will immediately make your company more profitable. Uh, another case study, uh, optimization. So if you are a company that has, for example, a fleet of vehicles, making them run just a few percent more efficient is, again, straight to the bottom line. So there's a lot of low-hanging fruit within companies to innovate with data, but a, a lot of companies are afraid to get started because they simply don't know how. They don't know what problems they can solve, they don't know what data they have, and they don't know what people they need to make that happen. Mm. And is that around knowledge management in those organizations, do you think, in terms of how that's accessed and stored? I think that the first problem indeed is that a lot of companies are just simply not aware of the data sources they have. We, we recently did a, an exercise within our organization. So we're, we're a small business, right? We are 15 team members. We are six years old. And yet we found that we have 50 different data sources uh, of information around our business within our business and if you you can then imagine that if you're a company that's 100 years old and has 10,000 employees uh, that's going to be exponentially larger so just just knowing what data you have in the first place is a large challenge for companies and I think is is the one that they've been tackling for the last few years in an attempt to get to a point where they can then can then start to analyze it. Mm-hmm. And some of the managers who I have met and worked with are quite frightened by data. They feel quite overwhelmed by it. Yes, well, and of course, then we start to talk about AI and suddenly everyone is thinking Terminator and job losses. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) yes, it can get quite sci-fi at some point. I think it's important to realize that data can be transformative within an organization, but it doesn't happen overnight neither for good nor for bad. (laughs) But on the other hand, it is something that can relatively quickly, within weeks or certainly months, make your business more successful. Now, why would you not want to try to do that, I wonder? And and I guess those that are still afraid, they, they just need to find the right partner to get started with, someone who can hold their hand and, and while they go through those first few phases. Because I have yet to meet a company that could not benefit positively from, from doing more with their data. 
So thinking about the difference then between what that might mean at a strategic level and for somebody in a senior management role who can make that kind of decision, and then the contrast between them and, let's say, a team leader in their first most junior management role, how might that second person make more use of data in their role to make better decisions, do you think? Oh, that depends so very much on, on what kind of role they're in and um, what authority they have. I think one thing that I talk about to clients and um, when I speak at conferences is that commitment from leadership is always really important. Most people can, in principle, get started and do a little proof of concept very cheaply and very quickly. But what happens then? And unfortunately, I've seen also so many companies that do something uh, quick and dirty, so to say, and does look like it's very successful. But because they didn't build up the commitment beforehand internally, the solution ends up in a drawer because no one knows what to do with it. And then when someone asks about it, it actually looks like it was a failure because nothing came out of it. And so um, I encourage everyone to very early on think about how are we going to implement it? How are we actually going to productionize it make and, and actually derive the value of this solution once it's there? And that typically requires some commitment from senior levels um, or even board levels. So I think it's important to make sure you build up that support before you get started. And knowing that there's data at every level, isn't there? Not just the, the big data, the big corporate data. There is small data available to all of us. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think what many also forget about is that uh, data is not just spreadsheets. It's not just big databases of of rows and columns of numbers and data and text. What many forget is that data also come in the form of, for example, documents. So a PDF document, that is data, or images or videos. Data comes in many different forms, and we often neglect to think about the different types of data sources that we have within an organization, and we focus purely on the spreadsheets. And and so there can be a lot of value for organizations also to look at those sort of non-traditional data sources. I'm wanting to ask you a question about qualitative data here as well, just even data in a room, in a meeting, feedback that I'm getting non-verbally from people. You know, There's something about processing all of that as well, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. And this is where, as I said, it's if you do, say, social research and you're taking down notes, uh, comments that people have made, or you you have a feedback questionnaire where, where individuals have written feedback comments, that text can very easily be mined uh, for data. This is an area called natural language processing, uh, which is very, very much on the rise at the moment. And I suppose in the situation that you mentioned, you could even, if you had the permission to film the individuals, you could probably analyze those videos for posture and body language, etc., to glean more data than you had before. It reminds me, actually, I recently saw a case study of a researcher at uh, one of the London universities who was studying depression in uh, older people. And what they had done was they'd made these uh, older senior individuals watch YouTube videos and then filmed their response to these YouTube videos. And from that, they were able to deduce, purely from their reaction to the videos, which ones were more likely to suffer from depression or not. So, mm-hmm. so yes, there, there are many, many ways to get data and not just uh, facts and numbers. 
So just in summary, what would you um, say are your, I guess, top tips for an emerging manager thinking about handling what might be an overload of data to them in their day-to-day role? What might they do to make that simpler? Uh, Okay, well, I mean, the first thing is really to know what data you have. So trying to um, make an index of the data sources you have and how much of it is there and do you have access to it and um, what format is it in, etc. The second thing is to think about is there is there a problem that I have uh, or a challenge within the business that I have that could potentially be solved by using this data? And once you have those two, that's when you can start to look at, okay, well, how would I start? How would I get a team together to work on this? And, and of course, there are many ways to do that. You could look for internal resources or you can bring in external resources. But that's really the steps to go through to get started and do that proof of concept. Not to forget building commitment from leadership at the same time, building excitement because data should be exciting. And if you, and my last question for you, if you were going to give one piece of advice to someone, a budding entrepreneur with an idea they're passionate about, what would that be? Well, do it, I suppose. (laughs) It has to be. (laughs) Just do it. If your life is such that you can afford to give it a try, then absolutely give it a try and give it everything you've got. And and if you have to, then say, I'll give it six months and see and then evaluate. That's what we did. I said, I'll try for six months. And if it doesn't work, well, then at least I know and I won't be spending my whole life wondering what would have happened if I had tried. So absolutely just go for it. Give it your all and see if it works. And don't worry if it's a failure in the end, because Failure is is still something you learn from. You, you should still be proud that you really tried, um, and it doesn't mean anything negative about you as a person. So, absolutely, just go ahead and do it. Wow, I think that is a great place for us to to leave our conversation. So, thank you, thank you very much this afternoon, Kim. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a rating and review to help others find out about the show. This is a Podo podcast produced by Nick Hilton in association with Corndell. Mm-hmm.